What does the teacher say to her students in the very last lesson before the exam begins? Uh, it's been a, you know, a two-year course. They've been studying together. There is nothing new to say, is there? Um, everything has been taught, and it's all been revised multiple times. Uh, exam technique has been gone through. Test papers have been practiced. All that is left, really, are a couple of final reminders. It's far too late, isn't it, to start bringing in something brand new. Just don't forget the main things, and it's okay. You'll be fine when the exam happens. Uh, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. We're on page 1,222. Peter says, So I will remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. He's not telling them anything they haven't already learned. That's why he uses that word remind in verse 12. And then in verse 13, he says, I think it's right to refresh your memory. And like the teacher before the exam, Peter is doing this because he knows that time is now short. Uh, these three short chapters of the letter of 2 Peter are Peter's final words to the young Christian church. It seems that he is well aware that he will soon die. He's writing from Rome, uh, probably in the time of the Emperor Nero's persecution of Christians, uh, probably from prison. And his time is short. So verse 13, I will refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of the body. Which is a great image, isn't it? And a reminder that our Christian hope is of a far more secure and permanent dwelling place beyond death than we have now. Verse 14, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Peter seems to have had some sort of word from the Lord at his own time is drawing to a close. And actually, he wants to do two things. The first, as we've seen, is to remind his friends of the truth about Jesus, to refresh their memories while he still can. Uh, but what will happen then? You know, what will happen after Peter has gone? Like the teacher, he can't go into the exam with them. Uh, when this generation of apostles like Peter is not around anymore. So secondly, Peter also intends, verse 15, to make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Not just now, but for the rest of your lives. And that's the trick, isn't it? You know, it's one thing when you can get alongside your friends and speak to them and encourage them and keep them going, keep reminding them. But how will you keep them going if you're not around anymore? If you just glance across to chapter 3 for a moment, we'll get back to that in a couple of weeks' time. Sneak preview. Peter says in chapter 3, verse 4, there will be a time when, as he puts it, scoffers will come. Mocking and scoffing at this idea that Jesus will come back one day following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He has promised. Everything just carries on as it has before. Is Jesus really coming back? It's a question that Christians have often asked. And how will these young Christians hold on when Peter is no longer around to help them, to encourage them? How will they resist that incoming tide of skepticism? about what Jesus did, and even more about what he hasn't yet done, but he said he will do. How will Christians like us, not born until many centuries after Peter has died, know Christ's precious promises from chapter 1? 
Well, what Peter predicted about these scoffers was accurate. And there have been many since his day who have laughed at the idea of the second coming, including at various times, some from within the church itself. People who've said, well, you know, we've moved on from that. The idea that Jesus is like Santa and you'd better be good and go to sleep or there'll be no presents in the morning. But Peter saw it coming, and so he does something about it. And that's what our verses today are all about. Very simple message in verses 16 to 21. How can we be sure of our faith? How can we be sure of Jesus coming? The eyewitness testimony of the apostles, verses 16 to 18, and the reliable message of the prophets, verses 19 to 21. In other words, the New Testament and the Old Testament. That is how we will remember these things. So first of all, verses 16 to 18, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the objection he needs to tackle here. This is all made up. It's not real. It's a myth. And we know what myths are, don't we? Um, whether they're ancient ones like St. George and the dragon or King Arthur and the sword coming up out of the lake, or whether it's modern myths, the ones we watch on TV, which go into great detail to make themselves complex and keep people hooked and watching. They're all myths. Um, but that's what also what some people, by the time Peter was writing, were saying about the future coming of Christ about the idea that he will come in glory to judge all people and set all things right. Uh, next week, in chapter 2, we'll see Peter has some serious words to say about those who are making these claims, that the second coming is just a myth. He calls them false teachers in some of the strongest terms in the whole New Testament. But first he just says this. These are not cleverly made-up stories. It's not like Doctor Who about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in power. No, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's the difference between someone hearing that a bomb has gone off in Paris and then thinking, oh, I'm going to write a, write a novel about that and coming up with a very clever story, despite the fact that they know nothing else about the situation. They were just sparked off by the idea. The difference between that and someone reporting from Paris an account of what actually happened because they were there. And when Peter says in verse 16, we did not follow clever stories, but we were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, the we is the 12 apostles, the disciples, Peter and the others, those who had been called by Jesus to be with him and then sent out as kind of heralds of his kingdom. This is Peter's reminder that the testimony that he has and his colleagues have can be depended on. It's trustworthy, and it's true. Uh, all four of the Gospels in our New Testaments claim this eyewitness testimony, either because they were written by apostles themselves, like Matthew and John, or by their close associates who had access to their first-hand accounts. So you can probably see it most clearly in the introduction to Luke's Gospel, where he talks about how he did his research in his opening verses. And Peter's own contribution to this is what he's referring to in verse 15 when he says, I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. How could Peter do that after he'd gone? And within a few more years, there'd be no one left who could remember firsthand. Well, almost certainly he's, 
he's referring here to what will become the Gospel of Mark. Not yet published. Publishing wasn't quite the same in those days, but not yet available in those days. But most scholars agree the Gospel of Mark is essentially a record of Peter's own testimony written down by his close young associate Mark. It's interesting, isn't it, also, that out of all the things that Peter saw Jesus do and heard him say, the one he particularly mentions here in verse 17 is what we usually call the transfiguration. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, you may remember that account from the Gospels. Um, and you can read Peter's full account of what happened in Mark chapter 9. Uh, the experience of him and of James and John as they went up that mountainside with Jesus, and Jesus was transformed into dazzling white, and they heard that voice like thunder from heaven. But he says here, verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. It's an episode which gives confirmation of Jesus' identity, but significantly for what Peter wants to say here in this letter especially, it's also an event which gives a kind of glimpse into Jesus' return, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It was like just for a few moments the curtain of heaven was drawn back so that Peter could see the reality on the other side in heaven. A little bit like a trailer for a new film. I remember when I was, was probably about nine seeing the trailer for a new Star Wars film. And it was almost impossibly exciting, unimaginably. Just a glimpse into the promise that there was going to be another one in a few weeks' time. And then spending almost every waking hour thinking about it, you know, playing Star Wars with my friends, all the rest of it. Living in anticipation and hope for what was yet to come. On an even more mundane level, it's what happens to my dog when he knows that I've got some cheese for him. Some of you will have dogs and may be able to relate to this. You know, he, he is so excited, he squeaks. His eyes are just transfixed on me. He sits, he sits. He hasn't even been asked to sit, and he sits. I wouldn't say perfectly still because he's so excited, he then wriggles and stands up again, just because he knows that there is some cheese and it's on its way. Now, I know that's a ridiculous comparison. Of course it is. But I hope it makes the point. Peter says, I can be certain that Christ will return. And it makes such a difference to how I prepare now. And it can for you too. He says, I've seen a glimpse of it. Trust my words. We can be confident of the truths about Jesus and that he is coming. First of all, because of this eyewitness testimony of the apostles. And then secondly, in verses 19 to 21, we can also have confidence because of the prophets and their reliable message. Peter says, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it. The prophets is just shorthand for what we call the Old Testament these days. And the Hebrew scriptures at the time of Peter were generally divided into, into those two parts, the, the former prophets, the latter prophets, and we might call them the history books, and then the writing prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, they're reliable, says Peter. Now, they've already proved to be reliable in the first coming of Jesus, which fulfilled their promises in so many ways. And we'll hear some of those in the run-up to Christmas in our services. So we can confidently trust the parts that we are still waiting to see 
fulfilled when Jesus returns. And Peter says, pay attention to it. Verse 20, you must understand. And I think those are significant phrases in and of themselves as well. They're both phrases about engaging our minds, aren't they, when we speak of understanding and paying attention. We mustn't be scared of difficult questions. If I asked you, what do you not understand about God or about the Bible? I wonder what comes to mind for you. The great thing is there is an invitation here to think. You don't have to pretend that it's all okay. You've understood the lot and it's all kind of taped. None of us are like that anyway. I'm certainly not. There is an invitation here to inquire, to doubt. For those who who would not want to call themselves believers in Jesus at this point, that's okay. Keep on exploring. And if you're a Christian, you will still have doubts and questions. Uh, If we're persevering, we'll gradually work through them in our lives. But we won't see everything clearly, this side of heaven. That's just who we are. And it's okay to come and to search, to seek understanding, to respond to that invitation. And what is it in verse 20 that Peter really wants us to understand? He says, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's one of the clearest statements in the Bible of what this book is, basically. It's really helpful. Having seen in verses 16 to 18 that the Apostles' testimony, what became the New Testament, is not myth. It's also true that when we read Moses or Daniel, Ezekiel in the Old Testament, they have a word from the Lord, a word supervised, verse 21, by the Holy Spirit. That great phrase in verse 21, prophets, though human, spoke from God. That is what the Bible is. They are human. David writes differently to Isaiah. And we notice this, don't we, sometimes? We get something of the personalities of the different authors of Scripture in in their books as we read them, their voices, their perspectives. Every book of the Bible has its own kind of history. It's set in a particular time and culture. And that's one of the reasons why it has such a rich depth when we read it and explore it together. You know, sometimes parts of the Bible will make us laugh. That's okay. Sometimes it will make us cry. It should. And yet at the same time as all of that, it is also God's book. It may be written over many centuries by all these different human authors in their time, and yet it tells this one story from Genesis right through to the end with one voice holding it all together. It hasn't been dictated. Moses and all the others, their minds were not bypassed. Their personalities were not switched off when they were called to write God's words. But each in their own way were carried along, in Peter's phrase, by the Holy Spirit. Which is why when Christians ask, who wrote the Bible? There are always two answers to that question. Both true. It was written by Peter and Moses and all the rest. And it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here you are, says Peter, basically to them and to us. I'm going to be gone soon. And when I'm gone, here is what you will need to remember, to be reminded of those glorious promises that Jesus has given you, the things I've been saying, so that you can be confident of his return. 
the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and the reliable message of the prophets, together giving us the word of God, trustworthy, authoritative, and clear. By which I don't mean we won't have any questions anymore. We always will, this side of eternity. And I don't mean that some parts will need to work hard and think hard to get our minds around them. There is a need for careful interpretation of what God has said. But by which I mean that the Lord is capable of speaking to us through these pages to communicate what he wants to say. Um, I received a prayer letter this week from a, a mission agency that Claire and I have been involved with for a long time, which supports gospel work in many countries, lots of countries across Europe and other places. And in the midst of different items of news of things that were happening, it said this, which caught my eye. In these times, when some people are sowing doubt, we proclaim with certainty that the Bible is God's word written. That is Peter's point here as well. Now, the letter, interestingly, came from an Anglican mission agency. And I take that comment about people sowing doubt as a, a, a subtle nod to recent events in the Church of England, including the long debate at General Synod last week about proposed blessings for different relationships outside of marriage. I'm not going to get into that debate this morning. Most of you will know where I'm coming from on it anyway, except to note that one of the key reasons why we have to talk about it in the church in these times is because it hinges on whether or not we accept this testimony of the apostles and the prophets about what Jesus said and what God says. And so it's no surprise that in many of the speeches at Synod last week, if you listen to them, uh, many of the speeches opposing these new proposals were just full of words that come from the Bible. While most of those calling for change said very little about either the witness of the apostles or the prophets. But let's just finish with the two images that Peter gives us here in verse 19 for the reliable message he's given us in his book. Because we need to hear those, and they are particularly appropriate for this time of year. First of all, look, it is a light shining in a dark place. That's an Advent image, if ever there was one, isn't it? In a world of darkness in so many ways, at an international scale, right down to a personal scale. The word of God, through his apostles and prophets, shines a light. We have a light here to guide our way, to show us our paths. And second, look, Peter calls it the morning star, rising at the start of a new day. For the astronomers among us, of course, that's Venus, the brightest light in the, um, the pre-dawn morning sky, a reminder every morning when it's still dark, that dawn is coming. It will not be dark forever. And in the Bible, that's a reference to the return of Jesus that Peter is writing about. Jesus calls himself the morning star in Revelation chapter 22. And when we read John chapter 1 in carol services, in a few weeks' time, we'll hear those words again, won't we? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So a very simple message from Peter this morning, but it's one that we all need to hear and be reminded of. It's just this. When I'm gone, hold on to this book and you will hold on to the message. It's the antidote to the darkness. If you want to see clearly, here is your light. Light to see by. Read it. Remember what it says. 
hold on to its promises until everything that the Holy Spirit has inspired will come to pass. Amen.